<laughs> and my plays, my plays now cannot be overtaken. Your play, your record can be broken, but mine can't because someone would have to come in from here old, and I know who's ever out there. So. <laughs> So you know what? That reminds me that I'll start in another place than I thought I'd start, which is pretty much par for the course. Um, but because I want to tell you a certain story which just came in my mind having to do with that. Um, but really I had in mind a whole um, overview for this whole month of June it happens, uh, and I hadn't planned on this, that after this whole comeback, I'm not here next week. But then I'm here the rest of June. I hadn't planned on that, but I, I need to be away next week. But I'll be here the rest of June. So I tried to think of what do I want to have as an overall rubric. Heather said, uh, told me that in the week she was here, she did the Four Noble Truths, and then she did the Eightfold Paths and the Brahma Viharas. So I said, that's the whole of the story. You know, there's nothing, there's actually, that is the whole of the story. And actually, whenever I say today we're going to talk about X or Y, and it sounds like it's a new topic, it's actually always the same topic. It's always the same news, because there's only one truth, that when the mind is clear, we are moved to behave out of kindness, because that's our natural, that's our natural wiring. And when we behave consistent with our natural wiring, we feel happy. We feel like, I heard yesterday, um, I don't know what, where I heard it, maybe I turned on the radio to hear the traffic reporters are driving, and somebody was getting interviewed, and I don't even know the whole context of the interview, but, at the, but I heard this particular line that the person said. He said, um, well, what's important is at the end of the day, you want to feel good about yourself. And I thought, that's it. That's what's really important. At the end of the day, you want to feel good about yourself in whatever way that, that rings true. Does that ring true for you? Mm -hmm. You know, that, that um, remorse and guilt and humiliation or shame are all things that, that, um, that don't feel good in us. Just viscerally, they don't feel good in us. That isn't even where I plan to start, but this morning I read, um, very early, I read, um, it was an interesting thing. I, I, went, I read a thing in um, Smithsonian Magazine about quarks or quartz or uh, some, a, a marsupial, an animal, a, a marsupial <clears throat> that was an, becoming an endangered species in uh, Australia, it's natural habitat. Yeah, what is it? Quoll, Q-U-O-L-L. Q-U-O-L-L, a quoll. I never heard of a quoll, but it's a marsupial. Same it looks kind of like between an anteater and a panda, you know, it's got a kind of a nose like that. <laughs> More like an anteater. But apparently the quolls became an endangered species and uh, they, because they eat certain tree frogs and the tree frogs had become infected with a certain something or other that was killing the quolls. So they tried to figure out how to unendanger the species. I'm very touched that somewhere in the world, while on a level of human beings we're still killing each other, uh, other human beings are figuring out how to unendanger species of quoll, which you never even heard about. <laughs> I'm very touched by that. And they figured out that they would take uh, baby tree frogs and uh, inject them with uh, um, some compound that was very nauseating to quolls. And the quolls would then eat these baby tree frogs because they would seem like an appetizing thing to their vision going you know, along. And the vision would cause them to, oh, there's a, there's a tree frog, boom, I ate it. And they became very sick from this nauseating element. And then thereafter, they didn't eat those tree frogs at all because uh, they, their neurology learned because they look and they sniff. Is this something that I should eat? You see how animals go around, sniff, 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 okay, I'll eat it, sniff, 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 okay, I'll eat it. So now they learn that sniff, 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 if it smells like this, don't eat it. 
they stopped eating those frogs, and now they are rejuvenating themselves as a species. So I, what I, the whole point I was making is in our viscera, we know what's good for us. You know, If we smell something that's putrefied, we say, ugh. You ever open a bottle of milk and you say, ugh, I'm not drinking this, or you open something that's not good. You, your viscera know that it's not good for you. I want to have the, I have, and I, I want to think about together with you over these next few weeks, the fact that human beings have in their viscera something that knows when they feel guilty. Ugh, I don't want to feel this again. This is a not nice feeling. This makes me unhappy with myself. At the end of the day, you want to feel good about yourself. You don't want to feel humiliated or embarrassed or guilty. Or I think we can sniff it out, and then we can... Then it sets up in us a pattern of reflection. So rather than smelling uh, uh, the thought, I now want to do this, we think about it, reflect, uh-uh, if I do this, I won't feel good. It's going to make me sick if I steal this or if I exploit this or if I take this. This act that I'm about to do will make me not will you know, will make me feel sick at my stomach. Anyway, it's a big roundabout beginning to think about to tell you that I've been thinking about how to go about thinking how to go about teaching people understanding, remembering myself that practice is about keeping your mind clear on behalf of making uh, decisions that are ethical and moral and serve myself as well as other people on behalf of my own happiness and other people's happiness. That in, in, a, in a sense, when you think about bodhisattva, you think about people who take care of everybody else. I think it's in, that it goes along with taking care of yourself. If you take care of all beings, you take care of yourself as well. It's um, sometimes they say about selfless service, and it could be a little bit um, confusing that you not take care of yourself. But it means not particularly, um, not losing track of there's a world out there, taking care of yourself, but really recognizing that the broader the net of people that I am connected to and take care of, the happier I'll be, the less lonesome I'll be. I'm never going to get to where I thought I was going to start. Early this morning, I have a very nice habit of rising early. Earlier this morning, I, I read, here it is, I read a story in um, NYU Physician, uh, which is not me, it's my husband actually, but he gets their newsletters, and there was an article in it that I thought Stan Groff would have loved, would love to see, he is still in this world, he could still see it. Many years ago, Stan Groff, when he first came to this country, Experiment, who is a physician, experimented with the use of hallucinogenic drugs with people who were terminally ill. I just thought we didn't sit, but you sat. Okay. It, it's I. You know what? You know why I thought that? Because I feel differently. I've just been in a meeting with talking with people for an hour. And so I, I, I listened to myself, and I thought, you're talking too fast. Why are you talking too fast? I thought, I didn't sit, but okay, I didn't sit. You could all sit for a minute on your behalf. <laughs> it's in service to all beings. <laughs> no, 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 I'm on a roll. <laughs> I at least want to get us on the right page. So, but so far, we didn't get up to where we're starting. This is so we have to get up to the start. So here's an article called, For the Terminally Ill, an Ancient Drug Offers a New Path to Spiritual Healing. Years ago, uh, in the 1960s, I think, Stan Graf came to this country, somewhere on the East Coast, I think in Pennsylvania. He had a clinic, where it was still legal, in which people who were given a diagnosis, they were going to die, they were terminally ill, usually with cancer. Um, and he... Um, and had them as part of a project where people would volunteer for the project. They would be really tutored in what was going to happen during the project. And they uh, had a, a therapy which involved coming on a certain day to a prepared and lovely environment, a beautiful hospital room, comfortable, with flowers and um, bowls of fruit, whatever made it look congenial and comfortable. And uh, they were given a dose of LSD. They were also told to bring along with them 
photographs of people in their family, their nearest of kin, special days, their wedding photo, their graduation photo, their graduating class, artifacts that from all times of their lives. And they had a several hour experience under the influence of a expanded awareness drug of listening to music for a while, especially selected music, and then in that very relaxed and expanded place, looking at these photos, looking at their graduation pictures, looking at their wedding picture, and somehow, for the most part, finishing that experience, feeling I had a full life. I really did a lot of things. I am connected to a lot of people. I have loved a lot of people feeling really connected in a lot of ways, not pleased to be dying, that, that, you know, for sure, but not as frightened of letting go of this life. And say, I had a full life. And the line in this, so all of a sudden, and by and by, in, and it makes this point in the article, in the 1960s when there was a lot of non-medical use of um, medicinals to alter consciousness. There was a, a bigger and bigger ban against the use of them, even for scientific purposes, so that those projects had to stop. Now, they didn't mention Stan in this article, but that does say, um, da, 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 scientists began in the 1950s to explore the therapeutic potential of hallucinogens to treat terminally ill, as well as those suffering from alcoholism and uh, other addictive disorders. The results were encouraging, but the rising use of recreational drugs during the 1970s spurred a political backlash that effectively ended research for decades. As therapies, these drugs were basically erased from our collective memories, says the physician who's doing this. So now they're doing it again. Uh, they're using psilocybin. They're using uh, not mushrooms, but a synthetically pre prepared psilocybin. They're calling it psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy. They talk about the same thing. People come to a room. It's nicely prepared. There's music. There's flowers. There's bowls of fruit around. They bring pictures and artifacts. And they, they are accompanied by uh, people who are specially trained to accompany people in altered state uh, uh, experiences. And it's particularly a story about this man who is himself a, a physician. Uh, he discovered he, uh, he, he was given a diagnosis. Uh, uh, he's, he's, he's dead now. He passed away in March 2010, as this article was being written. This guy got a diagnosis of, uh, doesn't say what, but something that he knew he would die from. And um, he heard, he said, I got the diagnosis. I was accidentally watching a television documentary about the war on drugs, and it mentioned a study at UCLA in which terminally ill cancer patients were given psilocybin to help them come to spiritual terms with their illness. So he's 49 years old. He followed the trail called this one, this one, this one, this one, this one, this one finally got admitted to a protocol of people doing research. And um, at the end of this, it says, a format the psilocybin session proved to be profound. I knew very quickly that I'd received the real drug the first time. Oh, they were given, some of them were given real drugs, and some of them were given, after all of that, set up a, a placebo. So I can imagine that, you know, it doesn't say that anybody with the placebo had the effect, but... <laughs> He said, I knew immediately that it was it. Uh, he said, I was driven by the music. I felt that I was being driven by the music, started seeing deities, spiritual shamans. A couple hours into it, Turkish music was playing. I saw whirling dervishes. At a certain point, he said, he said earlier in this article, uh, I've always been a very self-contained person. I feel very distant. I don't have any close relationships. I don't, and the biggest thing he said is, I'm afraid of dying because my thing is I never depend on other people to help me. I can't ask for help. He said, at a certain point, Matt's defenses crumbled. He sobbed. He asked to be held by his therapist. Uh, at that moment, 
doctor so-and-so who's doing it said, uh, Matt experienced a sense of transformation in his ability to feel supported and loved. That peak, the social worker said, that peak of intensity lasted only 10 minutes, but that's the one experience that stands out vividly for him and it comes up in the integration sessions that happen afterwards. And Matt adds, it wasn't like I was cured by the end of the session, but the real breakthroughs during the session, the real breakthroughs came through in the integration sessions when I brought what happened that day into the real world. I'd been burdened by a lot of sadness, and while that's not completely gone, I'm in a better place now. This has helped me resolve past issues about my parents and siblings. Now I can die unburdened by the angst of my childhood, and it's been a gift to me. So I wanted to bring it for you, first of all, because I was touched by it. I was thinking about unburdened by the angst of our childhood and how do we get to be that way. I want to eventually be making the point that scrutiny of our inner life through enhanced attention, just through meditation, not for or against the use of an, you know, awareness enhancers, but that's not what we're teaching here. Here we're teaching about using the mind to pay attention. By paying attention over time, for us all to be able to come to grips with the angst of our childhood, the angst of our life, the angst of any time, so that we can feel connected to other people. So that I am so moved by the line where he says to the people around him, please hold me. To be able to ask somebody else for help is a very significant move forward. We have this whole world full of potential attachments, connections. You know, I'm, I'm trying more and more not to say attachments because people new to Buddhism often ask me about the word attachments because they say, I heard that if you're a Buddhist, you can't be attached to anything. And they get a really cool idea about it, like you keep a distance from them, not attached. But I am connected. I am connected. And I hope you are too. And I know that everybody wants to be connected. So what I think, what my hope was that over these next three weeks, four weeks, until the end of the month, wanted to talk about, since I just said in the same sentence, our practice here. What is our practice? You know, let's start again from, uh, from uh, day one. Just as I, as I said to Heather, uh, you've just told every, everything if you've done the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the... Brahma Viharas, that's the whole practice. But what really, when people say, I've been practicing for three years, I've been practicing for six years, I've been practicing for 10 years, I want to be able to say, what are you practicing? You know, what are you practicing? You know, if someone said, you know, I'm, he's performing on the violin today, and then, uh, you know, in Carnegie Hall, and you say, how long have you been practicing violin? Could say 43 years, you understand what he's doing. But what are we practicing? And now I'll tell you the story that I was going to start with, because I think what I want to talk about today and next the, the, the times we're together is that the, the ways in which we practice keeping our attention alert, uh, keeping our attention awake and un sharp, unclouded by the vicissitudes of our life so that we can see what's true and appreciate our difficulties, make good choices with challenges, and also really celebrate our connections, both of them, so that we don't have to wait till the last minute to celebrate connections or recognize them. Does that make sense? Good, because I just talked about It's a big introduction to sentence one. You think that's what we're doing here? We're paying attention? <laughs> The right answer would be absolutely, yeah, Absolutely, right? right. Now I can slow down because I said that whole thing and I've got this part written down. But that all came to me in my mind since I read that. That's fascinating, isn't it, about that? That's a little bit a sign of a compassionate society, a growingly compassionate society that has gone back to say, well, you know, maybe we could help people uh, do this difficult piece of life. I said, then maybe we can help people do this whole life, which is difficult. So I, um, I told Joe this story earlier this morning we met, and I was talking to her, and 
I said, maybe I won't tell this story this morning. And as soon as I said, maybe I won't tell the story, I told, I'm telling it right now. <laughs> because in a certain way, if there's a story that comes up in my mind and I think to myself, maybe I can't tell this story, it means that, I, my, that my mind has some little <laughs> spasm of hesitation about it. And may I not have a spasm of hesitation? You know, really. I mean, there are things that, about other people or intimacies about myself that are too much information and that I shouldn't tell. But this is a story that, okay, here's a story. You'll know why. <laughs> I passed a certain milestone on this last trip. I didn't have a birthday. Uh, you know, that, that's next month. I passed a milestone. The milestone was, I was getting on a flight from uh, uh, here to Chicago. And uh, the, they make it, in a, the, when they're ready to board, they say families with young children, first class people, families with, traveling with young children, and anyone who requires a little extra time in boarding the aircraft can get on now. I think to myself, hmm, okay. <laughs> Sooner or later, you're gonna have to get up at this point. Now I think to myself, do I really require a little extra time or would I like a little extra time? But the fact is they probably said those people who would like a little extra time, because they're very careful not to say it in a bad way, you know, that might in some way put you in a category. Those people who would like, I mean, anybody here would like, you could stand up and go. Because they're also mandated not to ask you, what, why do you need this time? You know, that nobody's going to... And, uh, you know, since my hair is white and everything else about me looks like a person of my age, if you go up, they say, good morning, madam. They take my thing and I'm on. But from the whole time from when I stand up and I walk over to the agent, I'm sure that everyone is looking at me in this whole place. <laughs> and they're thinking, hmm, you know, I, I don't know what they're thinking. Maybe they're thinking... Good for her, she went, got on early. Maybe they're thinking, maybe she has some disability that I don't see. Maybe they think, why is she getting on? I'm just as old as she is, I could get on also. <laughs> uh, who knows what they're thinking? Uh, but they're not thinking young, beautiful, healthy, vital, any of the things that I used to be that I liked when I was them. <laughs> But I thought to myself, it was a very long walk from where I was sitting <laughs> to the agent. But I did it. And, once I, and I'm telling myself, well, you're, you're really very fit, Sylvia. The reason you're doing this is because it's hard to put stuff in the overhead bins. The overhead bins are very high. You have to stand on the chair. To, the reason I was doing it is I wanted like a little more help, a little more time to board the aircraft. And I just did it. And it felt to me like a momentous thing, like the first time... I was 50 years old and I was at a family wedding in uh, New Jersey and I sat next to my husband's cousin who's an ophthalmologist and I said, I'm so proud of myself, Joe. I'm 50 years old and I don't need glasses. And he said, yes, you do. <laughs> I said, how do you know? You know, you haven't examined my eyes. He said, how old are you? I said, I'm 50. He said, everybody over 40 needs a little help in the reading. Now, when you read at night, don't your eyes get tired? You sometimes get headaches. Yeah, 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 all those things. So the next morning, I was in an, airplane, I was in a, uh, in an airport about to fly somewhere, and I went to the Walgreens in the airport, and I bought readers. And I thought to myself, this is an epochal moment. And, you know, and I have not taken off the readers since because... <laughs> I read better with them. As a matter of fact, now I can't read without them. But, uh, but it's a way that the mind keeps itself from knowing what it doesn't want to know. I told you two easy things, you know. I didn't tell you any really embarrassing things that I keep hidden from myself. But when I discover them, I find that it's always a relief to discover them. And then it's a relief to tell other people also. Can you believe it? I didn't let myself know X, Y, and Z. Because it's just every secrecy that I carry around is another, it's, it's occupying a piece of real estate in my mind and in my heart. You have to ward off somebody else who'd find out about that. It's much easier not to have to remember what I don't know, what I don't want to know. And a way to talk about mindfulness is not only knowing what's going on out there, but really significantly know what's going on in here. 
You know, I really want to pay attention to what's going on out there. We talk about that a lot in here in terms of social activism, in terms of doing things. I voted this morning. The who voted already? You vote with absentee ballot? Yeah. Uh, I hope that everybody is going to vote. It's a kind of a midterm election and people... Uh, I have like a religious activity called voting. I seriously mean that. I come from a family of immigrants who came here because here people could vote. And so I make a thing really out of not ever missing an election. And I felt good when I finished the voting. You know, like I studied the book, I read what everybody said, looked on websites. So mostly I, when we talk about paying attention to what's happening, talk a lot about pay attention to what's happening outside so that we'll be on the alert what we should take care of, who we should vote for, what we should espouse, what we should support. I, I, I think the other part of it is being alert to what my mind is doing and what it's registering. It's like having a whole other conversation. Like anybody watching me in the airport, first of all, for, when I told you before, what is everybody thinking uh, about me? I guarantee you, nobody was looking at me. Probably isn't a soul. And the only people that were looking at me are the people who wished that they had gotten up to board early <laughs> and didn't. And I think everybody else, don't. Do you look to see who's boarding? Don't look to see who's boarding. It's a trick of the mind to think everybody's looking at me. But the, if I am looking at me and I not only see that I'm checking, that I'm hesitating, I'd have to think to myself, you know, Sylvia. You have stuff still around this oldness business or about the how you look business or about how strong or not strong you are. You know, I don't have to like minutely analyze everything, but not to be asleep to the fact that that's a whole, that's a whole drawer full of stuff that's taking up a certain amount of real estate that maybe I took care of a little bit of. I don't know how much, but to watch. I have been telling people that what I mostly watch is the movement of my mind that's about to be seduced by greed or by envy or that has been momentarily seduced by greed or envy or um, annoyance or anger and see what I can do to put it back together again. I give you. I'll, I'll tell you one more example from this trip. There were a lot of things that happened in this trip that I wanted to tell you about, but I'll tell you this one because it's a it's a it's an ordinary example, and it happens to everybody here. Um, because on my trip, I was um, I was back on the East Coast, and for a while, I was in Boston. I um, I got to see a cousin of mine. I haven't seen in many years, and uh, uh, the people who know me here know that I have a very small family, no parents, no siblings, no aunts and uncles, a total in the world of two cousins, neither of whom I, both of whom live at a distance, are much younger than I. I have family younger than, than me that I produced, but I don't have any family coming along with me, family of origin. And every once in a while you start to wish that maybe you had somebody out there, a great aunt or something. Anyway, I had lunch with my cousin uh, in one of these places. She lived nearby. She made an effort to come and meet me. We had a lovely lunch together. I was very happy to be with her. And uh, at the end of the time together, we spent a couple of hours together, looked in old albums, reminisced about our growing up together. We lived in the same house for a year. And at the end of the time, as I was leaving, I, um, she dropped me off at the place I was staying. I said, you know, I'm really hopeful that you'll come to uh, my grandson's bar, that you'll be coming to my grandson's bar mitzvah this November. Because I know that the cards went out that said save this date in November, you know. So I said, I'm really hopeful that you're planning to come to that bar mitzvah in November. I said, well, as a matter of fact, no, that was the bottom thing. No, it doesn't work for me because of X, Y, and Z. And I felt in the moment so bad, you know. It's not like I'm so close with this person, you know, but 
I haven't seen her in a long time. She's my only family. Who knows what freight it's laden with about not having a family or whatever. So I'm, I tell you this because I, I watch my mind. I'm feeling so kindly disposed. She said, no, as a matter of fact, and she gave me what I thought was a very insubstantial reason for not, <laughs> for not coming, uh, especially with so much leave time. And... Uh, and I felt, you know, the, my whole mind went from, well, I'm appreciating her so much, such a nice person, I like her, I was like, so. And I saw it happen just like in a second. Anybody relates to this kind of a story, by the way? I won't tell it if you can't relate it. All of a sudden, Ur. And I watched that, it's like a microsecond, Ur. and I thought, don't do it. You know, I was just about to say, please think it over. It would mean so much to me. You know, can I help you come? Da, 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 da. I realized, what's in, like in a really microsecond, what's the truth, Sylvia? Truth is she's not coming. And if I say anything, I leave an imprint in our lifelong association of cordial cousins. I leave an imprint of disharmony. If I say one word, I said, oh, okay. Then I started where I was getting out of the car. I started to walk towards the house that I was staying at. And I thought, you know what? She sees me walking away without turning around. Turn around, Sylvia. I turn around, smile, wave. <laughs> and then she drives up, and I felt so relieved. I was enormously relieved. And it's a minute story, but I thought I dodged another bullet. I just dodged another bullet. Because otherwise, I would have had it on my mind for the rest of my life. Not day and night, but I would have had it on my mind every time I thought about her, which isn't even that frequently, that I had polluted our relationship by finding fault with her. And I didn't have to. And I told that story to somebody afterwards, and they said, but didn't you feel bad? I said, I did feel bad. I felt very disappointed. Did you feel angry? I did. I thought, she could have made an effort. But I also felt immediately so proud of myself that I did that. So look at that. You did that. You had the impulse to do X, and you didn't do it. How many times in my life, how many times in your life have you had an impulse to say and done it and regretted it? Anybody here has ever done that? You know, I'll just say this. I just have to tell you how much badly this makes me feel. You know, I felt we were such good cousins. Blah, blah, blah worthless, and I pollute the relationship. So it's a tiny little thing, but I thought to myself, you're making progress. You are really making progress in minute little ways. So I could think of my practice as, you know, the huge uh, moments in which I saw really were connected by affectful bonds to so many people and through them to so many other people. And there's an extraordinary way in which we all live in a web of connection or really it's true that there's no one here and it's just life arising and passing away in this extraordinarily mysterious way. Really it's the truth of the, um, the, the suffering that's created in the, by the imperative in the mind for things to be different. They're the moments of great understanding of insights or the incremental moments where the mind is about to do X and you don't do it. That it's about to be angry and act on it, or about to feel mad and do something about it. And it doesn't do it. I figure I'm erasing a moment of karma from that. I'm erasing a habit pattern from that. What do you think, Heather? <laughs> you didn't think I was going to call on you right at that point. <laughs> I, I knew you would. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> no, don't you think that's a big deal? Yeah. It's tremendous. That's it's a big tremendous. deal. Because we do it a million times a day with an eyebrow raise up. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I actually um, I had a teacher who was important to me very on uh, early in my practice. And it was a time in my practice where if somebody had asked me, Heather, what is your practice? I would have said, sitting retreats, you know, and maybe <coughs> sitting on the cushion during the day. It was all about the form that we practiced earlier in the class and, and that was what it was to me and that was my commitment. And I had this teacher 
who saw that and saw the gift of it and saw the danger of me just placing my whole passion for this thing called practice on this simple thing where you're sitting and your eyes are closed and, you know, what about the rest of my life? So he said to me, take the next year, Heather, and all you need to do is notice when you like something or when you dislike something and see if you can just let it be there and not follow it along, not follow all your actions from that place. I did not want that instruction. <laughs> I wanted to just sit quietly and peacefully and, you know, work my stuff that way. But it's been, mm -hmm. it was an incredible shift for me in um, the richness, as mm -hmm. you described, of what is practice, you know. I'm trying to think who it was. Don't, don't. <laughs> I think I know who it was. It's okay. I, 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 I think the part that, that, uh, that, that Heather is you know, underscoring there is that moment to moment, you notice what's the pull on the mind and uh, addressing it, not pushing it away, not, not seeing it, but feeling it. And say, for instance, somebody said to me, didn't you feel bad? Of course I felt bad. But I, I also, by not re being reactive, I could immediately realize what's the truth. The truth is she's not coming. The truth is I could gum up our relationship forever, or at least taint it. Uh, the truth is talking is not going to do any good at this point. The truth is it, it, it was a great relief. The Buddha called it the bliss of blamelessness. Not, not uh, Yeah. Uh, that's really such a good. Tell me your first name again, Debbie. Did you all hear what Debbie said? Mm -hmm. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not freely given. That means not saying, "Oh, please, I would have liked it so much," uh, because then if people give it, it's not freely. It's not really a gift. They did it for you. It's always a little bit tainted by that. It's very, very hard. <laughs> I think the worst thing, I won't, there's a, a whole long story, but I won't tell you the whole long story. But the most difficult thing to feel, well, now that I said that, I have to tell the whole long story. <laughs> because it's, and it's a ridiculous story. It's not germane to accept to myself and two or three other Yiddish people, speaking people in this class. But, uh, when I was a child, it's probably one of the first jokes I ever heard, is uh, uh, about two people talking about their respective mothers who, having come from the old country, were very um, uh, totally fluent Yiddish speakers. So when either of these two people, men, uh, got asked by somebody, how do you say um, calamity, or how do you say skyscraper, or how do you say... Um, uh, weekend vacation or whatever. So I'll call my mother, and there was always a word. There's a way to say that, and uh, uh, the the answer would always be in Yiddish. That the, the translation would be the word is duh, and uh, someone got one of them got once asked, "How do you say disappointed?" And he said, "I'll ask my mother." So he calls, and he asks, and he comes back. He said, this is what I did. I asked my mother, I said, Mom, it's me, uh, Morton. I'm glad to hear from you. And uh, everybody here well? Yes, everybody's here well. Uh, Mom, uh, what's uh, the day after tomorrow? Day after tomorrow is Friday. Uh, what are you doing day after tomorrow, Mom? Well, I'm cooking a special dinner for the whole family. Say and mom, what will ha how will you feel if I don't come to that special dinner? And the answer in Yiddish is, 
I would feel very disappointed. So, <laughs> and the joke at the time was that disappointed, there certainly are words for disappointed in Yiddish, but the, the joke is somewhat a melange of you don't want to disappoint your mother or not showing up on that occasion is a cause for knowing the word in English or whatever it is, but disappointed. But disappointed is what causes the mind to, to want to, to change somebody else's mind. Oh, please, won't you come? Please think it over. Please, please, please. And that's very good, Debbie, about... Because it's, it's you know, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And how to know that. Yeah. So your little story inspired me to pull out my wallet card. Okay, read out your wallet. And it said it's a good thing to write down the ten things you like about somebody. So on one side is my partner who's not difficult, but on the other side is a close friend who I'm sure has been in a number of your teachings. And it, I won't go into the story, but I thought, hmm, I need to look at that again. So it was helpful. What, is it a card that you made? or? Yeah. The, the only hard part was getting the printer to do it on two sides with, you know, so it was never scratched. It, so it's ten, it's ten things that I thought of, you know, what is it that I like about this person? Because Typical pattern is there may be ten things you like about people. They do one thing. They don't come to the. Bar mitzvah, <laughs> that's, all I can that's exactly so. That's true with partners all the time. They do one thing, and you think to yourself, "How can I be with this person?" <laughs> uh, you know, how come all these years I didn't figure out that I shouldn't be with this person because they did this thing? Because it actually swells up the mind. And it takes over all the real estate. It's a really a maniacal thing. It's like someone wrote me a sent me a paper. My grandson sent me a paper this morning that he's about to submit. It's his final paper in computer advertising or something. And you want your um, you want your program to be viral. And I didn't I I, I didn't actually know that that do you, is that a word that people use about computers? You want something to be viral. That means it should catch on all over the world. Uh, it's a marketing word, viral. I thought he spelt it wrong and he, meant, he really meant viral, but it's, <laughs> it's viral, huh? That's a, a, I, but it means it would, it would catch on. But somebody says to you, your partner or your anything, your child says, not coming home for Thanksgiving. Ah, takes up the whole real estate. It's viral, it's infectious, you know. Um, and it causes wrong thinking. The wrong thinking is. They don't love me. If they loved me, they would never do this. They wouldn't, you know, they would know that I don't like it, and they wouldn't do that. Of course, that's not true. The truth is that they do love you. They're just doing this. You know, it's a, it's a whole, it's the, it's the ability to discern between the two of them. But yeah. Some things you should fight for? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I don't, I don't think it means everything is just fine. It means I, I certainly, I voted this morning because I want some to be this way and not that way. But I wanted to vote with a clear mind, not with one all disturbed by, um, that, that seems so clear to me. My father was passionate in the social activism, said, I need my anger to tell me, to get me to do what I'm doing. I said, no, you don't. You need to have a flare of, uh, indignation, anger, whatever you want to call it, to let you know this is not right. And after the flare, the flare could settle down, and then you could decide what would be a good way to address that problem. I, I really, otherwise, we're just going to be, you know, raise the level of escalating viruses. Let me see what else. Oh, so I want to talk about what well, we did talk about. We are. Um, Heather was saying, about this teacher saying uh, about your practice for the whole year should be noting when the mind is intrigued mm -hmm. by pleasant or um, contracted by unpleasant. And then just not, first of all, noting it is good because then that stops you and you think, what should I do now? Uh, rather than uh, react. And then, what would you say after that? You note it, and then what? You don't just leave it alone? Yeah, 
he actually gave me an easier instruction. Oh, all right. <laughs> he said, he said, you know, don't don't take yourself too seriously, Heather. You know, you won't always catch it at pleasant or unpleasant. A lot of times it goes all the way into you really like something, you really don't like something. So that's okay, you know. But when you notice that you like something, really notice it. And you don't have to follow it along with your actions. Just notice that you like something. Yeah. It's okay. And that's it. Um, and that's what you were talking about. I was thinking about what Debbie was saying with not taking that which is not offered freely. Um, <laughs> You know, it's almost like a like would present itself. Uh, it was being offered, but because I didn't have to follow it along and keep doing all my actions out of that liking, then I had this space where generosity could arise. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the important part to me of your story when you turned and you waved. Mm -hmm. You know, you had already let it be, so then there was room in your heart to give. I'm but right. if you had engaged, then there wouldn't have been that room to give. You would have already been full, like you said. You know what I love, Heather? First of all, I love it that you said that. And second of all, I love it that we're teaching profound dharma on the most teeny weeny 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 <laughs> possible story. There's nothing dramatic. Those stories happen every single day mm -hmm. when we are disappointed one way or another. Yeah. It's, to me, it's Nancy. a universal story. And, yeah. And, the word that keeps coming up for me is insatiable. Yeah. And I look at that story and I, I see, well, I can remember when I would go home and my mother, the minute I'd walk in, would be, when are you coming back again? Yeah. And it's like, I just, it's understandable, but it, <laughs> it kind of takes an edge and it sort of tells me that it's insatiable. There will never right. be enough. <laughs> and the completeness, including finishing with the wave, yeah. of saying, whoa. Yeah. have this afternoon. Yeah. We don't need to go right now to what the next thing is yeah. or what used to be or anything else. We just have this yeah. and to let that be complete and not need more right now. I'm very glad that you that you shared that thing about um you know, and I, I feel like I'm sure everybody does a certain amount of compassion for your mother that who didn't mean to upset you, but you know was so happy to see you that she was worrying about your leaving and coming back again, and it takes away from the moment. What are we going to say, Susan? Well, we also have a Bar in November <laughs> and, uh, with an East Coast family and, um, uh, you know, hoping that people will come. But yeah, I think that part of when you do an event like this is you have to realize that there are people who aren't going to come, uh, and that's the kind of attachment. And, and somebody asked about when to get really annoyed. To get really annoyed when the bar mitzvah boy says he's not. Really <laughs> 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 uh, the, the 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 whole thing of watching your heart fall down. You know, we have those expressions. My heart sank mm -hmm. when I saw this. My heart sank. Mm -hmm. I mean, you really viscerally mm -hmm. feel your heart sink. Ah, I so didn't want this. And it's what's happening, you know. And uh, you know, here's this 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 man who just died. He so didn't want that. He so didn't want that. But it was what was happening. And I, I, so I think to myself, I'm glad I read that in the same time that we're talking about this minor, minor, nothing, nothing thing. Because in the mind, it's the same fall down, you know. It's a, it's the same experience of the mind. You think, well, one is much graver than the other, but. In some ways, I think that I'm practicing for that grave fall down that will happen sooner or later for about news about myself or somebody by learning to come through the, the small fall downs and end up standing. Somebody was going to say something over here. What are we going to say, Marty? I'm, I want to talk about this because it will be helpful to me, I think, because it's an ongoing thing that I'm going through, like so many people in our society. I think the economic downturn has just kind of come and hit me personally. Mm -hmm. So I'm in my office every day. <coughs> the phone doesn't ring. Uh, I wonder where I'm going to get money to pay the next month's rent. Am I going to have to move to my home off a home office like my partner just did? And, uh, oh, nobody thinks well of me. I'm not a good practitioner. And it goes, the, so this was happening to me yesterday. And I'm sitting there saying, 
you know, you're just getting more and more down and depressed. This is not helpful. This is not useful. So I thought that maybe a skillful thing to do would be go to, to go and visit my aunt who is in uh, a home about five minutes from my office. Uh, she has Alzheimer's. And I periodically remember to go over and see her. Her two children are further away than I am. So I, <laughs> I went over there, and as soon as I walk in, you know, different residents there recognize me. They say, oh, we haven't seen you in such a long time. And, and then I am smiling to every. I mean, everybody is so weird in their own particular way. <laughs> you know, one woman, she's sitting where she was last time going, oh, oh, you know, and, and the noises and the sounds and people just, you know, standing at their doors and say, hi, hi, you know, whatever. And I go and see her and she's always lying on her bed and just, and we just enter into this conversation that's her world, it doesn't, she, she knows that she doesn't quite know where she is. Uh, she doesn't know whether she's talking about her past life or her present life. And she always is asking me where I came from and, and, how, and when am I going back and am I going to take an airplane, you know, and, and so on. And, and then we sing a few songs, and it makes her so happy. You know, we sing, we always sing, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. And, and then I said, oh, and I'm going to come back on my birthday and give you a piece of birthday cake. And, of course, she won't remember, but I will go on Friday. And after I left, I was just so in a different place. And also it's the thing of just remembering that, I'm okay in this moment. I can take a breath and just kind of be right here in this moment and maybe notice a beautiful flower or something. And for that moment, the pall just kind of lifts. Mm -hmm. And so that <laughs> so I'm just trying to remind myself because... I think it's good to remind, and I think that we can... We can uh, uh, make that story also a universal story is uh, the, that uh, the, uh, the continuing instruction of Heather's instruction about notice what's come up to captivate the mind one way or the other way or pull it into what you so well described, that, that sort of funk in which the um, commentator in the mind goes on a spree. It then starts to make comments on it. Well, the reason is because I'm a crummy practitioner and it's not going to get any better and I'm going to have to move home and it'll be worse. and. And you don't know, actually, you know, and it, it's all your fault, and I should have anticipated this, and whatever else I could have said. And it's as if you can't say to the mind, stop, so you go do something else, and then it, something else just fills up the whole real estate. And then later you think, okay, that fell out. It, it just goes back, doesn't mean you don't have to think about your practice or what to do or economic realities. It just shrinks it back to a kind of a normal state. So I think that when talking about practice, we could say, as we have, oh, it's 10.59, so we have one minute to say. We could say, <laughs> we could say, it's the practice of paying attention to what's going on outside and inside, and what's going on in response to what's going on outside and inside, and then doing something about it that's a wise discernment about what, could, what would be good to do right now. Now would be good to go visit Alzheimer's patients. Now would be good to tell, to go bake a pie. Now would be good to go for a swim. Now would be good to go to the gym. Now would be good to sit on my meditation cushion. Now who knows what it would be? But it would be good to do something else, other than let this particular tape roll on uh, where it's going because it's not going in a good place. I think that's the whole. If you, I not maybe the whole, but I imagine us going along on a road. And there's all kinds of um, choices that we make. And sometimes we choose to follow a certain road, and all of a sudden, like if you're driving a car, all of a sudden you're driving on a, a road, you realize, I'm in the wrong place. And then you go back, and you pick up the road. I love it now with the GPS. If it gives you an instruction, and you're going, 
and you come to where there's a where they tell you proceed another six blocks and they're doing renovation and the road is torn up you can't do it so you maybe make a left turn or a right turn because you're going to figure out how to do it without the the GPS and so you make a little turn and you start going and the GPS person voice gets quiet for a minute and then it says recalculating it's <laughs> perfect so I'm thinking that'd be a good name for a book that'd be a good name for a book recalculating route recalculating route that's a great name for a book been thinking about titles but recalculating because you don't know that you've made a wrong turn right away in your mind. You think to yourself, uh, that was a really a bad meeting that just finished. Wow, I should have said this or that. And when so-and-so said that, I could have said this. And matter of fact, she always says things like that in the middle of a meeting. Matter of fact, when I see her tomorrow, maybe I won't be so friendly. I'll say it wasn't such a good meeting or whatever. And then something, something catches the mind, like your hands are tense or your arms are tense or you're gripping the wheel. And a mind says, recalculating, wait a minute, somewhere you took the wrong turn. And I think that the whole of, if I say, what is my practice? My practice is continue to, continuing to recalculate all the time. Say, am I going the right direction? Am I going the right? We're brailing our way through this life anyway, you know? We don't have the, for, for the, especially for people who are older and reasonably vigorous, we don't have people who live this old and we're out operating in the world and making relationship after relationship often because we lose a partner one way or another or making relationships or changing professions in midlife. Nobody did the lives that we're doing before. And so it's a recalculating from the beginning to the end. It's one long recalculate. And to have tools to recalculate with. You know, I was thinking, we have to quit right away because we have no more time, but uh, we have to. We'll continue it in two weeks because I'm. I am convinced that Heather's instruction about in your life that I, I really I think it's marvelous to have a time to sit every day or do some structured practice every day. It organizes the mind into a a place of peace and clarity. Maybe we should end with Ajahn Amaro, who is soon leaving the Bay Area. Just, don't you feel bad, Marty? I just, horrible. I feel so, I miss him and he didn't even leave yet. Uh, Ajahn Amaro, who's been with us, I don't know how many years, with, a, with a, a, a mid-90s and established a monastery up in Mendocino in a Bayagiri. And, uh, he's just such an extraordinary person, an extraordinary monk. And um, he's been the one monk on the Spirit Rock Teachers Council all these years. And he is wonderfully for the world going back to be the abbot of um, Amaravati in uh, London. And uh, we're going to miss him around. And I am particularly indebted to him for his meditation instruction, which is my favorite, which is let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the you finish it. That is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body. And let it stay that way. Ah, I remember him saying, if anything comes That's to it. interfere with that natural peace and ease, attend to that. That's the last attend line. To that. Attend to it. And let it rest that way. And if anything arises to disturb that natural peace and ease, attend to that. Yeah. That's the whole instruction. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the whole instruction all through life. Uh, but imagine, it's so optimistic that, first of all, if you say, let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease, ah, it's like saying it is the natural, the natural peace, peace and ease. ease. You say, wow, that's it. I don't have to like graduate so that I'll finally have a mind of peace and ease. It is mine. It's just so stirred up. So assume that, so you just said, when you're at home this week, Try that. Let the mind and body assume the natural peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of the mind and body and let it stay that way. Only attend to whatever arises to, dis that, to disturb that natural peace and ease. Only notice whatever arises to disturb that natural peace and ease and attend to it. And what I think we'll start with um, uh, the next time we meet is what does that mean, attend to it? 
because I think it's a big list of ways that we could attend to it. One of them is we could go visit an Alzheimer's aunt in a place or any of those other things of do something else. We could also bring our attention to what it is that arises in the mind and pay attention to that, have some insight about it. And also expand around that to say what's really the truth. I'm so glad to be back. It's a pleasure to be back. It was a fun thing to do this with you. Thank you. Did I let you talk enough? I'm so talky. You know, you've been gone a while and you've been missed. It was perfect. That's right. And, and you got to talk a whole hour before I was here. So, <laughs> so in 30 seconds of May, whatever we do here together, so transform us that the fruits of it go with us into our life for our own benefit and for the benefits of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings be happy. May all beings come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.